Yeah, why not? Why? Just... <laughs> you make me do all your dirty work. Oh, uh, well, dirty work? Uh, your sight. Uh, hey, your sounds, dude. Ah, oh, man. All right, all right, anyway, fine, whatever. Okay, this is this is episode two of the Sight and Sound. <laughs> <laughs> you got it? Yeah. <laughs> Smell like a walrus. Okay, man. Is that it? You okay? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good, man. My takeaway, though, from from last week, from talking to Jeremy and talking to Andy in the same week, um, Mm -hmm. was just it, it reminded me how vast that music is. You know, there, there's so much to know. There's so much to be good at. Oh yeah, there's every aspect, every, every yeah. area. And I, I mean, yeah. I'm no dunce. I understand that, right? But it just it hit me in the face last week with these two. In Jeremy's case, he's involved in, in another part of you know producing the music. It's important what he's doing. I don't know. I. I never been to his place and seen what he does or heard. I mean, you know, but I'm interested. I'm really, I'm really, after talking with him or hearing him talk, you know, he was doing a lot of talking. But yeah. after after that, I'm really like, I want to go and check out his place and, you know, and see what he does and hear what, you know, what what happens when he makes changes or, you know, yeah. show, show me why he does what he's doing and why it's important to do things, you know, a certain way. Because I've never recorded, I I mean, I've done a little recording just, you know, at home, but nothing like that, you know, where it's so involved with mixing and uh, it's just a different world. But it's just as important as the guys laying down the music. Yeah, which is something he does Everybody, Everybody's important players. So, yeah, there's a lot involved. Unending, man. The sights and sounds. Tommy, we're back. Yes. We're here with Jeremy Kroll today, man. Yeah, how lucky you are. Hey, man, we're thrilled. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, today we're going to talk about uh, audio engineering. Is that right? I guess, yeah. Mixing. So, um, I guess, how how the sausage is made? How's it made? Well, I mean, you know, it, like I, mixing is one of one of the things that I do. It's just something that I happen to do a lot more of, you know, than producing bands or or like engineering bands. I mean, there's there's a there's a big difference. I think that a lot of people in the in the computer age kind of don't get, but um, that's like a whole other kind of can of worms. I mean, uh. You know the mixing thing is is a lot of fun when it, when the tracks are good. You know, and what I mean by that is not necessarily like if the music is good. The music is is usually good, either that or I just kind of deal with it. But um, <laughs> no, it, it you know the, the, there used to be a time in the industry way before I started doing this where like it it mattered. You know, yeah, like the players matter and the instruments matter and the room matters, and so 
once all that is is dialed in, you know, and you have guys or girls or whatever players that are really great, you know, um, then it's up to the engineers to to capture that. And there used to be sort of a really high standard for microphone technique and placing microphones and really nailing things with no, you know, external adjustment. There wasn't this relying on, you know, oh, like, we'll EQ it after, we'll do this after, we'll do this in the mix. Like, you know, there, there were guys, there still are, who who nailed that, you know, or who got it pretty damn close to nailed on the way in. I mean, like, really legendary guys like, you know, like Tom Dowd, you know, who passed away, obviously, or Al Schmidt, who's still doing it. I mean, these guys are literally guys that, who have told me to my face, you know, like, um, you know, I there's no EQ and there's nothing going to tape except just microphone placement. And then I listen to what they've done and it's just their rough print at the end of a tracking session is most people's finished product. Yeah. You know, that's how honed the technique is. And so, um, you know, and there, there's a lot of different schools of that still, you know, one of the things that I always liked is, you know, part of being like a confident tracking engineer was always sort of being able to commit to whatever was going to tape. It wasn't like, it's not like now where you can record into your computer and you can have a compressor or something on the on the track in the software, but it's not actually being printed. It's just, you're just monitoring through it, you know, until you decide to print it or bounce it later, you know. It was all about, like, committing it. And a lot of, like, the real badass, like, a lot of the British engineers and a lot of the, actually, a lot of the Canadian engineers. Canada, by the way, absolutely pretty much destroys everybody when it comes to to making rock records still to this day oh yeah totally i mean not e- not even a question and i i feel kind of bad saying it because it's mm-hmm. like because like i should be, be i should be like oh like you know like the american guys are amazing and i mean yeah there are some but i mean like you know when you look at canada and you have guys like like bruce fairbarn or you know or garth richardson or bob ezrin or david bendeth or you know randy staub or bob rock or mike fraser it's it's just this ongoing list of just and like Paul Northfield, I mean, there's just these ongoing list of just badass, badass people who are doing it right, who just, who are doing it sort of as the best hybrid of old and new that they can do, you know. Um, but what I'm, the point of, of that, you know, of getting, you know, um, geographic with it, I guess, is that, you know, uh, like a lot of the really older school British dudes and a lot of the Canadian dudes, I mean, and I mean, and a lot of the American guys, like, who kind of gleaned that from from the other two categories, it's like, they are not afraid to print things to tape. They are not afraid to go in with compression and EQ going to tape. They want it to be as close to finished sounding as possible, and they're sure of it because, obviously, they know what they're doing. This is their, this is their craft. So the way that that sort of factors into my view on the mixing end of things is like, you know, um, half the time that I'm mixing, you know, if somebody else is there with me, which is, which is rare, but if somebody else is like at my house or whatever, hanging out and I'm like finishing something or whatever, like, you you know, anybody that does that, you can ask them and they'll be like, Oh, like he just was complaining the whole time. Yeah, I was, I I was complaining (laughs) the, the entire time because, you know, these days it's like, first of all, you know, I should only be so lucky to get a project that had a high enough budget to have a tracking engineer that did things that well. Um, but you know, it's, it's like, I would get these, these 
records. And th- actually, I've been pretty fortunate with this as of late. This hasn't happened as much, but uh, you know, I like just because I haven't been tracking as much and I've been mixing a lot. Like it, like that sort that part of the skill set doesn't leave. You know, so when I get tracks and if they're lousy, it's like I'm just sitting there thinking of like all this stuff that I have to do you know, to get it ready to mix. So there's like a whole other level of, you know, of EQ kind of shape and dynamic range kind of correction, not like compression, you know, like actual corrective compression, you know, where it's like, it's not about like how cool it sounds. It's about getting it to be, you know, in a usable state to, to work off of and to mix, you know, I, I would, a lot of it is that, you know, not to mention whatever kind of editing has to be done of like, you know, clearing out uh, spaces and silence and noises and things like that. So, you know, as a mixer these days, it's like, it's a really weird thing. I, I get I get really frustrated a lot about that because who, it's like, it's not how I would have done it. Who so, do you, who's getting it wrong? Is it is it the musicians now? No, 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 no. I mean, you know, well, actually... By not hiring the people, the, the right I people mean, to do it? I mean, I guess you could, you know, you could maybe say that. I mean, because a lot of people these days seem to think that, like, if they order, you know, like an interface and, and a computer or whatever, that they're going to be engineers and, and that's going to be that, you know, and it's going to work, you know. But um, no, you know, it, the tools really don't matter after a certain point. You know, when the skill set is there, that's when it happens. You know, that's when it's right. It doesn't matter. But, you know, to people getting it wrong, I mean, it's not really that people are getting it wrong. It's just that, like... Um, People that are are making records a lot these days, especially younger people, and I know, like, you know, I'm one of the younger people, so it's weird for me to do that, to bring that up, but, like... (laughs) Millennials. Well, you know, a a big problem is that people are not really... They're not really mindful enough of how it was done before them, and they're a lot more mindful of, like, just just doing it any, any old way, you know, and I, and I I don't mean to say that as a as a total general statement, but it's kind of a majority statement at this point based on experience that I've had with it, you know. So, I wonder how much just like the change in the industry has done that. I mean, so much of music recording seems to be kind of done by the band itself. Well, budgets. I mean, yeah, because budgets are are no, are non-existent anymore, you know. And um, you don't have a label. No, very yeah, seldomly. You know, budgets are non-existent, and because budgets are non-existent you know, bands look inward and artists look inward to kind of handle things themselves. And some of it is a money thing. Some of it's a control thing, but, um, you know, it, it, I think it's, it's easier for somebody who wants to like, quote unquote, make it to justify what, you know, to justify buying like a, a recording interface and a microphone, you know, and software than it is for them to, to, kind of decipher why you would hire a specific person to do that stuff, you know. And again, like I don't I don't ever want to come off saying like that that's how everybody is, you know, cuz everybody isn't that way, but a lot of people kind of a lot of people kind of um kind of sort of think it's the tools, you know. And you're asking kind of where are people getting it wrong again. I mean, that that's another thing. The budget thing, because of the industry being in the shape it's in, that's an excuse that everybody's been using for like the last fifteen years. Yeah. That's not going to change, you know. Yeah. But um, you know, the I guess the miniaturization and the ease of having digital recording technology in your home 
on your computer, on your phone at this point is like, it's so plentiful that it really kind of gives the impression that like anybody could do it, which is, I mean, like, I, I'm never going to be somebody to say like, you shouldn't do it. It's, it's not my position, but, um, Maybe the the art form itself needs to be more respected. Well, there was a point in time, I mean, way before I, I was ever, you know, alive that like you needed a a console and you needed a tape machine and you needed microphones and you needed a room to do this stuff. And so, and you needed people that knew how to do it because the average person off the street would not know. And there weren't internet discussion forums where you could kind of read on what you might do with that according to some other person's hypothesis of what to do who themselves had never used any of the stuff so there was a point where that was you know commercial level infrastructure that wasn't obtainable you know easily on on normal means you know budget wise so you know there were specialists and professionals because there had to be and because you know that's just the way that's the way it was you know now that that kind of tech is available to everybody it really kind of undermines the concept of a of a specialist of like an engineer you know a skilled engineer whose job is to know how to use that kind of stuff and make it sound good and make it work you know um you know i, I don't know if like i've rambled a lot about this in mm-hmm. a very short period of time but i mean it you know the so like for for the bands out there that maybe don't have the budget or don't think they've got the budget uh what what maybe even the smallest steps what are the smallest steps they could take to start to get it right or to get it to a uh, a better workable product um you know for someone like you to, to craft it into a finished well i think that um you know it, it's it's one of those things where if you're gonna do that like if you're gonna do it yourself you know you should really do it right or relatively right i mean there, yeah. there is no right there is just like it sounds good and it's not messed up, but I mean, <laughs> um, you know, a lot of guys like, like one of the biggest problems, I mean, you know, again, like we use the, 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 we use the term, the industry as like this collective buzzword to signify like this awful financial Holocaust that happened to music. But like what really messed us up on the engineering side of it, what still messes us up on a pretty daily basis is software piracy. You know, the music piracy thing, I think we've kind of just come to accept. And honestly, um, it's almost passe at this point because it was done so much for so many years that now, like, it's almost like people are too lazy to even download it, so they just stream it now. Um, That's a whole other can of worms, though. That's not, I'm not bringing that up. But it's the software piracy thing, though, is is a really bad situation because, you know, it's very hard to. It's very hard to communicate the real worth of intellectual property when it's intangible. Yeah. You know, it's it, it, like if you were going to file some kind of a lawsuit against somebody for intellectual property theft and it was for like something physical, you know, like an instrument or a circuit design or something like that, you know, that's one thing. But with, you know, with the software end of it, it's like, first of all, it's, I mean, it, you can catalog and track the sales of stuff and the and the download traffic and all that but you know at the end of the day i mean you know there's only there's only so much anti-piracy protection there's only so much of that 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 works i mean all of it at one point or another has been cracked by somebody um it's getting a lot better but you know the, the bottom line is it's like one of the things out of the gate if you're going to do it yourself that is like 
kind of going to mess you up in the long run is is pirating software and not because if you think about it you know okay so let's say let's say you have uh a mac and you have logic that's your software that you have on your mac and you got it pre-installed or whatever so you, you paid for it whatever that's fine um now logic has a lot of plugins built into it native plugins i mean really not bad ones either i mean any reasonably good engineer could make an entire record in there with what's in there but you have this sort of mindset from people again where the tools seem to be so important now where oh like no i can't i can't use that stuff i need this specific eq or this specific compressor from this company because they say it emulates this really well or that you know <laughs> or so and so used it yeah or so then you end up like you know kids are not i say kids but like people are not willing to spend or are too lazy to spend, you know, three or four hundred dollars on a couple of plugins, and so they just go and they they get on like a torrent or whatever, and they get them, you know. So not only are you endangering potentially the livelihood of the developers of that software, but the other thing is is that, you know, part of being a, a recording engineer and part of being a mixing engineer is being adaptable. I mean, part of any profession is is being adaptable, but in a in a profession like this where you have so many options of ways to get things done, they're not always going to be the options that you want, you know, if you go to other studios or whatever, you know. So um, when you have, like, a, a, a piece of software like Logic or even Pro Tools, I mean, even the bare minimum in Pro Tools as far as processing goes is, is pretty formidable, you know, if you know what to do. And uh, when you sort of resign yourself to um, downloading stuff or thinking that, you know, it's a third-party thing, so it's got to be better because the stuff that's stock is is bad or otherwise it wouldn't be stock like that starts to limit your adaptability as an engineer because it's like you know you for some reason think that you can only get it done with whatever it is that you've you've installed you know you couldn't you couldn't do it or you don't think you could do it with what you had already tool wise you never bothered to learn how yeah to you do never it. bothered to learn i mean you know specifically with logic i i know this like it's it's weird that i keep bringing up logic but i was actually using logic for probably about five years before i was using pro tools so um you know i mean logic has has like you know multi-band compression it has a linear phase eq it has all kinds of different stuff in it stuff that for a very long time no other workstation software really had as a native package so I, I, I'd like to use that example a lot because, I mean, I, I did, you know, my first full length with just the stuff that was in there, and I don't think anybody complained. It's not like, it's not like when somebody buys your record that they're going to write you a letter later and be like, you know, it sounded really good, but it really would have sounded better if you had used, like, these, <laughs> these Waves plugins or, you know... You know, it really would have sounded better. I can, you know, I can hear those stock EQs. You really shouldn't have done that, you know. I mean, when has that ever happened, you know? It's... I, I definitely want to talk about how to hear this stuff for, for music fans or the consumers of it. But uh, I got well, at least one more question out for the engineers. For... I'll, I'll tell you something about how to hear this stuff really quickly with that. And, and it's going <laughs> to, and if anybody listens to this, it's going to ruffle a, a, a hell of a lot of feathers. But uh, here's hoping. Um, You know, plugins, like, when you look at a plugin online before you watch a video on it or even when you watch a video on it before you even hear it like half of what pulls people in is like a really flashy interface you know yeah. it looks really cool you know and for a very long time um i've had a theory 
And I mean, and, and what I was really surprised about is actually like a lot of other way higher level engineers than I am had the same theory. And then we kind of started messing with it. But like most of this stuff is, is very similar, if not the same code wrapped in, in different interfaces yeah different yeah a lot of it is it's kind of like in the in the overdrive pedal game tommy where like yeah you got all these idiots on the internet of course it's on the internet and they're making all these like overdrive pedals but really like inside of the flashy box it's just that like that tube screamer schematic that's been on the internet for like 15 years you know same thing they might have switched like one thing you know if it does a couple of resistors a couple of capacitors yeah it's done yeah so that's totally, you know, but but you wouldn't and know. it's better. Yeah, you think it's better because it has this really cool case, you know. So it's like kind of the same issue with with not all plugins, but a lot of plugins. And you, and for some reason, you know, um, it's always the ones that don't look that interesting that end up being like the baddest ass ones to use for some reason. It's like they know. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. maybe that's just that's where they spent their time actually making better code instead of having it. You would hope so. Yeah, you would hope. Yeah. Um, what does it do to the playing field, though, to have some engineers downloading the stuff illegally and others legitimately spending money? Well, um, look, I mean, I have a lot of money invested in my equipment, but I also have I have enough money invested in it, and it's to the point where I can literally do anything I need to do, and nothing, I have never had, or I should say I have not had an equipment-based limitation that has kept me from getting a project done in eight-plus years. Now, that doesn't really mean much. I mean, it just means that I spent the money and desi- I yeah. designed the system. So, I mean, if it's not going to fail, it's probably because I designed it. And I also had really good people to help wire it and set it up. But, um, you know, it, what it does is there is a there's a real rash of this. It's kind of toned down or maybe maybe it hasn't toned down. I've just blocked so much of it out and I don't see it on social media. But, you know, there would be kids we're like, oh, like I'll I'll master your whole record for four hundred dollars, or like I'll mix your songs for fifty dollars or twenty five dollars a piece, which is the most asinine thing I've ever heard. Because a, I know for a fact you're not that good, <laughs> and so nobody should be paying you to do it. And b, that's that's a ridiculous, that's an insultingly low amount of money for anybody to do anything involving mixing or mastering. You know, um, what happens when people are are compulsively downloading tools and things like that and then using them and taking money for it is they have no concept of the financial implications kind of of if you had to actually buy that stuff so they're wanting to ask like basically nothing to do this work for a quote unquote like experience that's the biggest bullshit mm. i've ever heard but um you have no cost overhead and because you have no cost overhead, you don't understand the the necessity of charging a what you're worth as a professional, and b, you know, recouping on your expenditures for your tools to to get this stuff done. I mean, it's not like, you know, it's like you got you got carpenters and all other kinds of skilled trade professions. It's like it's not like these guys are just making this money to to like have fun. I mean, these guys put a lot into the business to be able to to have the business and to be able to do what they do and so you know there's expenses there's things that have to be paid back you know and so when you have a bunch of kids going and torrenting all this stuff you know it's it's just like you don't you do not understand at that point that you you don't understand the concept of overhead with that you don't understand the concept of the fact that like you're making money not so you can like you know buy 
pot and you know and buy like you know xbox games it's it's you know your first you should be buying you should be working to live but you should also be paying off or at least working to cover your expenses and they're probably not seeing themselves as part of a bigger industry you know for which they're they're undercutting well actually product yeah kind of but i mean you know one of the problems is is that because of the advent of social media it's like you know you have these kids and they're always kids and I mean, well, they're, I, I hate saying that, but like they're kids to me, I guess. But, uh, you know, and it's like because they can comment on some famous engineer's Facebook posts publicly on Facebook, it's like that they think that like their word or their presence like means something, you know, and there's been so many pissant little wannabe kids that have sprung up like that. And, you know, they have their own drum sample packs and their own, you know, preset you know guitar amp simulator preset packs and stuff it's all a crock of shit do they advertise that is that that's what they say like come to me this is what i have um they do but this is one of those things where this wouldn't exist kind of if social media wasn't such an open source medium for people to do things like that like if we didn't have facebook if we didn't have instagram you know i mean i mean we had it even with myspace back in the day people would kind of do that but you know, it's one of those things where just because you have the ability to put yourself out there and the ability to sort of try and talk directly to people who you otherwise wouldn't be allowed anywhere near in real life, like, doesn't mean you should, you know. Um, so, you know, look, I mean, again, the you know, engineering records and, and mixing records and tracking stuff and cutting drum samples or whatever, this is something that anybody can do, but very few people can do correctly. And not only correctly, I mean, again, correctly is a subjective term, but to do it on a commercial retail level is an entirely different ballgame, you know, because if you look at companies like like TuneTrack, who is basically the de facto leader in, in drum samples, you know, um, and has been for the, for the last decade plus, there's a standard to how things are done. It's not everyday you know, any man tracking engineers that are brought in to do that stuff. There's a protocol for this. So again, when I see like kids advertising that, it's like, well, I know you're not doing it at that level. I know you're not capable of doing it at that level. And I also don't appreciate it's like, well, you're going to sell it for like $5, you know, like Mm -hmm. you're going to try and compete with them and you're going to undercut them. And then what's going to happen is people are going to question them like, well, why isn't your library $5? Oh, well, because their library, you know, was recorded at Avatar or was recorded at British Grove or was recorded, you know, at, at, like, name a major studio, you know, with a major engineer, like, you know, like somebody like Neil Dorfman or or Daniel Bergstrand or Randy Staub, you know, and so they have all this stuff to cover, the overhead, you know, the costs, so that's why the real stuff's not going to be $5, you know, you know what I mean? Like, it all comes back around, it all revolves around that, so, yeah. As a band, how do you how do you pick the right uh, the right team then? Well, I mean, you know, the the concept of it being a team has kind of changed considerably. I mean, it it used to be back in the day, like again before I was around, uh, that there were there was a producer, and then there was an engineer, and then there was a mixer, and then there was a mastering engineer, and then in there there might have been like an editor later on too. But each one of those was a separate thing. Um, and now, I mean. I don't know. I mean, there's a couple of people out there, more than a couple in each genre of music that are able to kind of do the one-stop shop thing pretty well. 
um, especially in, in metal. That's become a real, that's become kind of the way to go at this point. A lot of people are doing it that way. Very few of them are doing it to the point where it really sounds correct. Not, I, I hate saying correct, I'm sorry, but like as where, good as it could. where it sounds release, where it sounds, you know, retail level. And when you say you know? one, you mean one individual that's doing this? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a couple of really fantastic engineers in metal that are doing that, you know, and I mean... It started a really long time ago. I remember, like, when Andy Sneap, you know, from from the UK, when he started, you know, producing, engineering, mixing, and mastering records. I think a lot of people were very skeptical at first, and then, I mean, his work got better and better and better and better and better. And it was already really quite quite excellent, in, even in the beginnings of when people knew about him, you know. But like, he was doing all of it, you know. And now there's other guys that are doing all of it, you know. Um, it's kind of the norm at this point, at least for that style of music. So, you know, choosing a team is one thing. Choosing, you, you know, it should be based on really how you think they're going to benefit the sound of your music. If you're a fan of work that they've done, if it's a team or if it's one guy, it doesn't matter. You know, if it's what you want, that's who you got to talk to. You know, it's one of those, one of the sort of chronic issues that happens is... You know, people try and hire less expensive engineers and want them to basically sound like somebody else, you know, somebody a lot higher end. So, you know, I'm sure that there's probably a thousand different engineers alone in the United States who have been asked to make mixes that sound like Chris Lord Algie's mixes for $500 a song, probably less, you know, and, um, it'll probably sound like exactly what you paid for it. If that, you know, I mean, it's, you know, what's going to happen with something like that is that you're always going to, you're always going to end up realizing that the, the initial way that you wanted to go was the right way. Usually. So if you're going to spend, if you're going to cut corners and you're going to try and get somebody because you want them to emulate somebody else, you're always going to end up realizing that it was better just to get the actual guy, you know, um, I, you know, and again, I mean, not everybody can afford, you know, I think, I think he's up to, he's got to be up to at least seven or $8,000 a track at this point to mix, but, um, not everybody can afford that, but at the same time, nobody else can sound like that. So, you know, yeah. you, what's more important to you, you know, if, you know, as the artist, it should be about what, what sort of carries your vision over after you're done making your songs and, after that, I mean, it should be about the working relationship, you know. And, I mean, the cost is a factor as well, but, I mean, if it's something you really want, you know, and it's something you know is going to fit, then then you, you make accommodations to, to make it happen because you know it's going to be the right thing. The right thing and the affordable thing are n almost never the same. So, you know, it's, it's, your, it's a judgment call, really. So. Let's talk about hearing it. So, um actually experiencing the finished product like I, I know that it's different for every type of song and every every it'd be different from album to album but what do you hear in a good mix and what do you hear in a bad mix i mean well it's hard to listen to music objectively kind of as a mixer once you once you do that once you're an engineer it's like when you listen to music as a musician it's like it's never the same again you know it's all you're always going to be hearing it differently you can't really hear it innocently anymore <laughs> but um you know with engineering you know and, and listening to mixes and listening to mastered mixes and stuff and 
you know, it's it's just kind of like you have to listen for balance. And I know that's like a really cliche thing to say, but balance applies to a great many things. So, you know, you want to hear frequency balance. You want to hear, you know, even amounts of low and even amounts of high in the same mix. And, you know, unless it's intended to be something else, but, uh, you know, it, it has to have kind of a uniform sound and it has to have levels within the mix that are, that are, you know, relative to each other it can't just be like oh like here's the band and then like 6 db up is the vocal just sitting on top of it and then it makes the whole thing sound really terrible and small you know um and the other thing too which i love about the recording industry is you know there's generations of people that came before me that are have been doing this and are incredible at it and so you know referencing off of other things is kind of the way to go a lot of the time. I mean, if you're really paranoid about something not working and not being delivered correctly, sonically, to the to the to the consumer, I mean, reference it off of something else that you know sounds good that is something that you have known for a long time. You know, it's a lot of a lot of sort of hearing something that works is if it works, if it is relatable to other things that are out there, if it you know, if in the shuffle, like if you're listening to it on a phone or in iTunes, like, you know, if it goes from one thing to another and it doesn't take you out of the element and it has a similar sort of curve to it, EQ-wise, a lot of other things, you know, half of what commercial mastering is, well, before before the layperson seemed to think that all mastering was was making things absurdly loud, I mean, um, it was about kind of everything being uniform and fitting together in a presentable way, so... It would be kind of like having a really crazy looking painting and then making sure you put like a really nice frame and a really good protective coating over it and stuff. Just mastering. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I mean. That's what mastering actually is. It's like when you have an album's worth of songs, you want them all to sound cohesive. You want them to sound like they're from the same record. So. And But does some of that happen in mixing too, though? Oh, of course. But, but, but you know, one of the cool things about mastering in the traditional sense, and, as far, and by the traditional sense, I mean that it goes to somebody else to do it after it's mixed is that's a totally new set of ears and it's a set of ears that are tuned specifically to do that and you know are going to hear it fresh versus the mastering you know mastering your own mixes is kind of like home dentistry you know and and it's like you sit there and you've been exposed to this for so long that by the time you're ready to do it it's just like you don't even know what's going on anymore like i did this record for my friend's band in the UK um, earlier in this year and um, or end of it was last year into this year it was it was a long outing and and you know I think it came out pretty well but I wouldn't have been able to tell you that it came out pretty well until listening to it probably a month ago because because I mastered that too and I told him I was like man like I, I need at least like a week between mixing and mastering this record which I took but still you know it's you know it, it's not you go into it and you're just like you go to master it and you're the guy that mixed it and you've heard all of it before and you've heard it in such detail you can't unhear elements. and so yeah and so intimately that you're like i have no possible idea how i'm gonna go and work on a two-track version of this and do anything else to it because i have heard everything that is in here already you know it's just i'm too close so do lay people pick up on these things you think i think that um 
there's been a couple of incidents that have happened with released records within the last decade or so that have kind of woken people up to, you know, somewhat of what goes on behind the scenes with us. Um, one of the most notable things was when Metallica put out that Death Magnetic record, which I think was their most recent studio record, I think. It was the one that, like, Rick Rubin well, yeah, well, I was, was, say, was, Rick was in the room for or whatever. And uh, <laughs> I didn't, you know, I, that's a whole... I'm not, not going to get into that. But um, that actually was the first time that the loudness war thing really became, like, a mainstream issue because... At that point, you know, when you mess something up that badly, when you make something that loud and that distorted, like... So describe what went on for folks that maybe have not... Okay, heard. so what happened with that record? And I mean, I, I know inevitably there's going to be people from, from the industry in L.A. that know me that at some point are going to hear this, So I, but I really don't care because this is true as far as I've heard from multiple sources. But, you know, Rick Rubin, for a really long time, I don't know if it's still this way, but for a really long time, his criteria for choosing mixers for a record was that whoever was turning in the loudest mixes was was the winner, basically. Um, and he had a certain stable of engineers that he liked to work with, both for tracking and both for, you know, for mixing and stuff. And he doesn't really do much hands-on production anymore, like in the technical sense. So he has engineers that work under him that do that, too. And a lot of those guys are actually really good, but they still sort of have to yield to what he wants, you know, what is intended for the whole record, basically. So um, now, obviously, like, I didn't hear the mixes before they went to mastering, but everybody heard the mastered record, and it was easily, by the numbers and sonically to anybody's ear that can hear dynamic range, I mean, it was probably one of the physically loudest things that's ever been released, but it wasn't... It wasn't like a good loud. It was a horribly digitally distorted kind of, of loud. Crunch. Yeah, it, it like sounds like, you know, it sounds like something is wrong. You know, digital distortion is a horrible thing. Analog distortion is a nice thing. We, we love that. The digital one is, is, a, is terrible, usually. So Ted Jensen is the, the guy that mastered that record. And Ted Jensen, I mean, along basically like... It, Ted Jensen is in a tier of probably three or four dudes ever in the history of modern recording who are at that level with mastering it's like him and bob ludwig and you know probably one or two other dudes you know and uh ted jensen you know would do what he was told to do because it's his job but he you know from what i know of people that have worked with him judgment wise would never ever like he would never do that voluntarily so he would not have taken that project well, no, he wouldn't have done that to it. So long story short, what basically happened was is um, the mixes were delivered to him and the mixes were already as loud as they could possibly be. And then he took the mixes and was told to make them even louder, <laughs> which was like, <laughs> that's impossible. Uh, well, by somebody. By, I mean, yeah. yeah, and you know, I'm not, I'm not going to point fingers and I'm definitely digging myself into a, a nice hole professionally by going into it naming names but um because because also i mean like you know i'm like the third or fourth hand source on this but uh it's pretty commonly known at this point so so he was sort of told to, to do that and that was that was a precedent for two things when that record came out the first was that if i remember correctly bob ludwig was asked to write a piece for the wall street journal on the perils kind of of mastering loudness and on and all that stuff and that was a really big deal because not only did you have basically 
the guy that invented sort of the modern concept of mastering and basically the best guy that's ever going to do it talking about why what what happened was bad you know (laughs) but he was also explaining it in a way that i think most people on a normal sort of civilian level would understand it so that was the first precedent that happened that brought it into the light and then the other thing that happened was ted jensen actually came out and said that like he wished his name wasn't on it which i think was the first time i've ever seen or heard him do that ever about any record so Metallica putting that record out I think it was in 2010 or 2009 or something like that I forget that was basically one of these things where it took this whole struggle that we like in the recording industry were having with the loudness thing and just dragged it right out into the open right into the light and everybody could see what was going on because it was such a severe example of what had happened that now people understood you know people understood because if if it wasn't enough that it was explained to you, it was such an obvious example, sonically, that, like, you didn't have to have informed ears. Like, I mean, I don't know many people that would be, like, that couldn't tell one sound was louder than another sound, you know, especially when there was that much of a difference. So that was kind of a pivotal thing, that record, because of that. And and honestly, I mean... I don't want to say that it caused it to kind of recede, you know, the whole loudness thing, but I think it kind of, it became the butt of a lot of jokes and it became kind of the what not to do for a lot of people, you know, for a lot of engineer people and even, even music people like, like bands that I know don't do any of their own engineering would joke about it. Friends of mine that, you know, they would joke about it because they had seen like the articles and stuff on it. So, I mean, that was one of the things where it was kind of like, you know, it's kind of like putting on the glasses and they live and like seeing all the the alien people and you're like oh like there's this whole other thing going on you know and for a minute there you know the, the mainstream understood fully what was going on and he, they didn't have to be you know trained ears to hear that and to to see what was happening so. was was loudness going across the board or was it just a rock and roll thing no or? man it's been happening i think i i remember somebody told me this there was kind of a not like an official thing, but I think people kind of agreed that I think when it was, um, you remember when like Ricky Martin had that song, was it Live in La Vida Loca? Apparently yeah. that was one of the one of the incidents that sort of touched off this whole thing. Charles Dye, I think, was the mixer on that. And um, I want to dance now. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> like apparently that was one of the catalyst productions for this happening for this becoming a, a thing where pe- where people were like so people heard that and they wanted to emulate yeah it was like the space race you know for some reason people people thought that like they had to keep getting it louder and louder and then the other thing that i heard which was kind of an urban legend thing which i don't know is one of the other ends of it was i heard that um i heard that clive davis you know was clive davis had a, a stereo system in his office where it had the volume control set in the same place all the time. It never moved. And so he would sort of know when something was below or above what his area of comfort and familiarity was. And that was another thing that kind of contributed to it, you know. I mean, it's one thing for mastering to have, like, levels be normalized between songs on a record to make them flow better. But then to take the whole thing and just to, to just jam it all the way up like that is totally ridiculous and it it, you know it just what it's doing is it's simulating the sound of your ears giving way to super loud noise without it being physically you know really loud it it, it simulates the effects of your ears compensating for really loud noises kind of so 
Um, so that that Ricky Martin thing, apparently, from what I understand, was was the was the catalyst or one of the major things that caused this to happen. Um, and so now, you know, now I think it's kind of changing a bit. It's been changing for the last couple of years now that there's like the whole like there's this mastered for iTunes thing. And I think people are just taking more liberties with it. And um, I know that YouTube, I think, was kind of called on it. You know, and so they they were revamping their dynamic range algorithm for videos, and um, you know, Apple has always had that sound check thing built into iTunes, which levels everything the same. But I hated that because it always made whatever was the loudest it made everything as loud. It should have been, if it were up to me, like you know, Mister Audio asshole, I would have made it <laughs> whatever was the quietest was the one that it leveled everything to. So, um. Again, you know, it's that's it, a whole nother. So, yeah, I don't have to ask you about that. I don't even know what that's about. So, when you, as a creator, upload content to iTunes, they it's not. No, it's not automatic. Um, it's it's a it's an option that can be turned on on any basically any Apple device that plays oh, audio. Okay, yeah, yeah, they had that on the iPods even. Well, yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's like where, okay. where a lot of that started. So, um, that was kind of because people didn't like. This is this the most ridiculous, like, current technology, lazy, stupid thing I've ever heard still. It's like, because people didn't want to reach for the volume knob. They wanted to hit, you know, their shuffle or whatever and have stuff change randomly, and they didn't want it to be, like, too loud or too soft. So they wanted it all to be one level, and they didn't want to have to hit the volume knob. And it's like, dude, like, are you really that lazy now that you can't, you know, you can't, like, turn it down or turn it up? I mean, that's half the fun of music is, like, you decide how how engaged you are in it level wise, you know. But you know, I, what, what would I know about about anything music related? I guess. But um, oh, I feel like I've got an education today, man. I <laughs> I can't even imagine the impact now. Now that I think about that, shuffling, you know, four thousand albums. I don't know how many I've got in my my phone. Um, I take it for granted that they all do kind of blend together, even though really they probably shouldn't. I mean, mastering records now it's like i i kind of like to get it in the ballpark you know there's been records where i haven't cared and where we've done commercial masters at almost full dynamic range and it's and it's pissed people off because they would turn it up to listen and then whatever came on next in their shuffle would just blow their head off you know but um you know look i mean is it really too much to ask to change the volume a little bit like if the music when you created that record sounds good with that particular dynamic range that you're at. If it's not as much or if it's more than something, it shouldn't matter. You know, at some point we will remember that there has to be some kind of integrity to creating music. And so you should stick with that because that's conveying the music. You know, it's not, it's not being done for the convenience of iTunes or for, you know, handheld music players and stuff. So, you know things that work so to speak you know when they sound good and when you when you identify it as a good production it's about how relatable it is to everything else that's out there yes and it's also about you know if it causes like a reaction within you where you know you're like wow you know like that that music is amazing like that really speaks to me i think that's really cool like it's if if the sonic element of it is is so good that it allows whatever creatively and you know emotionally is in the music to be just conveyed to you so quickly and so directly then that's usually you know then they've done the job 